Welcome back to the campfire for part two of the Frontier Partisans podcast. Simon Gurdy, American Renegade. When Simon Gurdy returned to Fort Pitt after his disastrous hunting foray into western Kentucky in 1768, he had no problem signing on for a gig with the British Indian Department under the supervision of Alexander McKee. His language skills were in demand for one of the most important negotiations in all of colonial American history. The British Empire didn't really want its colonial subjects pushing across the Appalachians into the interior of the continent. They were perfectly content to keep the colonies nicely contained along the Atlantic seaboard where they could be managed. By the 1760s, even that was becoming a challenging proposition, what with with, uh, protests against the stamp tax and, and, uh, and whatnot happening in the, uh, the seaboard colonies, but the settlers who pushed into the west were practically ungovernable. They were out of reach and they tended to be of an unruly bent. Nothing provoked the Indians like land surveyors and white hunters and settlers encroaching into their lands. Traders were one thing. They, they brought goods that made the Indians' life much easier, goods that they could no longer do without. They were so linked into trade networks that uh, they were completely dependent upon them. Steel knives and hatchets, uh, brass kettles for cooking, cloth, tools, uh, firearms, flintlock uh, muskets and, and rifles, and powder and lead, and also rum. The hunters poached the game that the Indians needed to exploit to fund that trade, and settlers, well, they meant doom, and and the Indians knew it. The settlers meant pushing the Indians actually out of their lands. From the perspective of the crown, provoking the Indians meant expensive wars, which detracted from imperial endeavors elsewhere, and which they, they really couldn't afford. The British also preferred to reserve the interior for the fur trade, a proposition that was becoming yet one more point of conflict with their increasingly unruly colonial subjects. Benjamin Franklin pointed out in a, uh, an address to the British House of Commons in 1766 The trade with the Indians, though carried on in America, is not an American interest. The people of America are chiefly farmers and planters. Scarce anything that they raise or produce is an article of commerce with the Indians. The Indian trade is a British interest. It is carried on with British manufacturers for the profit of British merchants and manufacturers. So the way I look at this conflict is that the British wanted to control the land for purposes of trade and, and geostrategic advantage. The American colonists wanted to possess the land for speculation, settlement, and agricultural development. So in 1763, after Pontiac's rebellion, the British government drew along a, a line along the Appalachians and forbade settlement beyond that line. The British crown was serious about it, but nobody in the colonies really took it seriously. George Washington, who by this point was 
heavily invested in Western land speculation, said, I can never look upon that proclamation in any other light, but I say this between ourselves, than as a temporary expedient to quiet the minds of the Indians. And as a temporary expedient, it didn't last all that long. By uh, 1768, the pressure in colonial capitals and in London and most critically on the ground to breach that line had grown to the point where uh, the settlement line had to be readjusted or something was going to blow. Gertie's biographer, Philip Hoffman, puts it this way. The Indian department Gertie returned to was facing increased hostility from the Western tribes. For despite promises made to Pontiac and Gayasuda, English authorities were simply unable to control or curtail the illegal migration of settlers. Hoping for a solution, Sir William Johnson, who was the superintendent of Indian affairs for the British government, scheduled peace talks to be held at Fort Stanwix, New York. Johnson hoped to defuse the situation by convincing the Indians to let the king purchase new lands that would allow for increased migration. The 1768 Treaty of Fort Stanwix is as cynical a deal as has ever been struck because the British negotiated with the Six Nations, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois, for lands that the Iroquois claimed to possess by right of conquest from the previous century, lands to the east and south of the Ohio River. But they didn't really possess those lands. And uh, they negotiated to sell them for the equivalent of about $3 million in today's money and uh, without consulting the people who actually hunted those lands, the Shawnee, the Mingo, the Delaware. And uh, it was really an effort on the part of the Iroquois to divert settlement pressure away from their homeland in western New York and northwestern Pennsylvania at the expense of other native peoples. So, looked at one way, the Fort Stanwix Treaty of 1768 was a win for just about everybody. The British Crown relieved pressure on the 1763 proclamation line. The Six Nations diverted white settlement away from their homelands, at least in part and for a time. And they also had a blowout party on the funds that, uh, that they were paid. Settlers got legal title to land that they'd been squatting on and the prospect of more open lands to the West. The ones who didn't win, who got screwed by everybody, were the native peoples of the Ohio interior, the Shawnee, the Delaware, the Mingo. They did not accept that what was by this time merely symbolic overlordship gave the Iroquois the right to sell their land out from under them. They didn't accept the deal. And the Shawnee immediately set about trying to build a coalition to resist the growing encroachment by white American settlers on their lands. So Simon Gertie's working life for the next few years would largely be occupied with the deadly serious work of shoring up the treaty agreement and diplomatically isolating the Shawnee. His personal life had also taken a kind of serious turn. 
In the early 1770s, he took up with a young woman named Elizabeth Lowry, the daughter of a prominent trader who lived near Fort Pitt and a native woman. So she was, she was half native, perhaps Delaware, perhaps Shawnee. Uh, she was purported to be quite beautiful. And though there's no official record of a marriage, uh, Elizabeth was commonly understood to be Gertie's wife. And uh, now that he was a family man of sorts, Simon also took up a, a modest trading business of his own to supplement his income. And uh, Hoffman notes that Gertie at this time was something more than a typical frontiersman, both in his personality and in the status that, uh, that others accorded him. Simon's work associated him with officers of the Indian Department and other members of the colonial government, and with the Indian statesmen who were their counterparts. At 29 years of age, Simon had established himself as a gifted interpreter, a man with unique knowledge of Indians, and as a crafty backwoodsman who had traversed the country from Upper New York to the Kentucky lands. Few men on the frontier would have been able to provide more accurate insights into prevailing Native attitudes. Simon had a good reputation. He had acquired a beautiful young wife. He operated his own modest trading business. He had respectable land holdings on Squirrel Hill. And he was known for scrupulously keeping his word and paying his debts. Lacking a formal education, he nonetheless had an excellent vocabulary and was politically astute. He was considerably more sophisticated about business and frontier politics, red and white, than the majority of his rough-hewn co contemporaries, such as Simon Kenton or Daniel Boone. While the latter two were hunting and exploring the wilderness, Gertie was involved with the highest and most critical levels of frontier decision-making, red or white, civil or commercial. Gertie was, in fact, working in the top echelons of frontier diplomacy trying to shore up Six Nations' support for British policy and keep the Shawnee diplomatically isolated. Twice he escorted his old Seneca mentor, Gaiasuta, to high-level conferences with Sir William Johnson at Johnson's feudal estate in New York's Mohawk Valley. And it cost him. He was gone for months at a time, and at some point Elizabeth Lowry apparently got sick of his absences and left him. Despite efforts to avert war, the pressure kept building, and the anger of the Shawnee and the Mingo and the Delaware at encroachment on their lands kept getting more intense, and it was clear by the spring of 1774 that hostilities could break out at any moment. So the word went out for white men hunting or trading or surveying along the Ohio River to return upriver to Fort Pitt and other defensible settlements in anticipation of an Indian war. This was the setting for one of the most heinous acts in frontier history and one that would shape the coming events and, and push even the most hesitant Indians into militancy. The murder of the family of the Mingo John Logan. Logan's identity is somewhat obscure. He was one of the sons of an Oneida chieftain named Chickalemi, who may have been a Frenchman taken captive by the Iroquois and raised among them, and a Cayuga woman named Neonoma. 
which one is a matter of debate amongst scholars. He's been variously identified by the name Tagajute and Taganadorus. And because his father had a strong relationship with a Pennsylvania colonial official named James Logan, his son took the white name either of James Logan or John Logan. And he's come down in history simply as Logan. This practice amongst the native peoples of taking quote-unquote white names was pretty common. It was a way of getting around pronunciation difficulties, which you can probably detect in my own presentation. It's also very confusing. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll see Indian names that are taken from living white people. There were Indians that called themselves, for example, Simon Gertie which is, uh, you know, obviously that creates confusion in the historical record. But at any rate, Logan was a well-known person on the frontier uh, living along the Ohio River in the 1760s and 1770s. The Mingo people, as they were known, were Iroquois, mostly Seneca, some Cayuga, who had migrated down into the Ohio country in the middle part of the 18th century and had become close with the Shawnee. The Mingo were more of a community of families and villages than a tribe, and it's probably inaccurate to refer to Logan as a chief. He was simply a prominent man among them. One of the cruel ironies of the coming atrocity was that Logan was noted for his efforts to maintain friendly relationships with Anglo-Americans. This seems to have been a matter of temperament as well as, as policy. It seems it was apparent to Logan that the tide couldn't be stopped and must be accommodated, and that getting into hostilities would only doom his people. But on April 30th, 1774, a band of two dozen border ruffians led by brothers Daniel and Jacob Greathouse ensconced themselves at a tavern at a place called Baker's Bottom. It was a trading post run by a person named Joshua Baker at Yellow Creek, which is a tributary to the Ohio River, which lay south and east across the stream from Logan's Mingo villages. They, uh, the Great House brothers instructed Baker to send out a runner to Logan's camp asking for a parley. Logan himself was absent. He was either hunting or perhaps attending an intertribal council to address the growing tension and violence along the river. His younger brother responded to the invitation, either reluctant to forgo a parley or eager for a frolic. He brought along Logan's wife, nephew, and sister, who was heavily pregnant. Logan's brother could not possibly have been anticipating trouble based on the fact that he brought these um, women with him, and much less the, the horror that awaited them. The Mingo party canoed across the Ohio River to Baker's Bottom, where they were immediately invited to participate in a friendly shooting match. You probably see where this is going. Their muskets were emptied, and they adjourned to the tap room where Baker poured the rum very generously, and Logan's brother quickly got lit. When he, he started fooling around and grabbed Baker's hat and coat and was mugging in a hand mirror, and Baker reached beneath the bar and brought up a rifle and shot him. 
And as Logan's brother bled out on the floor, the Greathouse brothers and their henchmen stormed out of a storeroom where they'd been hiding and began slaughtering the remaining Mingos. Hearing gunfire and screams, Mingos in the village across the Ohio River quickly paddled across, and as they approached the shore, they were met by a storm of lead from Greathouse's men who knelt on the beach and opened fire on them. Most of those in the lead canoe were killed, and the occupants of the second canoe brought their craft about and fled back to the Ohio side. The Great House party mutilated the Mingo corpses savagely. Jacob Greathouse ripped open Logan's sister's belly and tore the fetus from her womb and allegedly scalped it before impaling the tiny corpse on a stake. So this became known as the Yellow Creek Massacre, and it's absolutely one of the foulest deeds to ever take place on a frontier that was replete with atrocity and counter-atrocity. And the crimes of the Great House brothers just unleashed hell on the Virginia and Southwest Pennsylvania frontier. Logan, who, as I'd mentioned, had been a, a peaceful man, unleashed a vendetta that in the way of such vendettas on the frontier and in partisan warfare, fell on the innocent. He wasn't able to reach the Great House brothers, so he attacked any white settlers that he could, could get to. And uh, he and a small band of warriors, Shawnee as well as Mingo, raided homesteads on the frontier. And uh, now a feared war captain, Logan left war clubs at the scenes of his slaughter as a kind of calling card. And uh, he also left notes that were written by captives expressing his rage and he had misidentified the perpetrator of the attack as a frontiersman named Michael Cressup. To Captain Cressup, what did you kill my people on Yellow Creek for? The white people killed my kin at Conestogo a great while ago, and I thought nothing of that. But you killed my kin again on Yellow Creek and took my cousin prisoner, then I thought I must kill too. And I have been three times to war since, but the Indians is not angry, only myself." The massacre and Logan's revenge for it were the spark that lit off the powder keg in the Ohio country in 1774. Virginia's governor, John Murray, Lord Dunmore, raised a militia army to go to war against the Ohio tribes, particularly the, the Shawnee. There were two arms of that militia army, one of them commanded by Dunmore and the other by uh, a Colonel Andrew Lewis. And in order to communicate between the two arms of this, uh, the, of this force, Dunmore tapped uh, his ace scout to act as a courier. That would be Simon Gertie. And Gertie chose for his companion on these extremely hazardous missions a 19-year-old frontiersman he had met at Fort Pitt named Simon Kenton. At that time, Kenton was going by an alias. He called himself Simon Butler because he was on the run. He believed that he had killed a romantic rival in a fistfight in the forest back east in Virginia. He'd find out later that his rival, rival had survived and that he was not, in fact, a fugitive, but that was a few years down the trail. So at 19, he was 
building a name for himself on the frontier as Simon Butler. Despite a pretty significant difference in their age and in their personality, Simon Gertie and Simon Butler hit it off in a, in a big way. They became lifelong friends. Actually, something really deeper than friends. Um, blood brothers. Years later, Kenton would describe their bond this way. Gertie and I... Two lonely men on the banks of the Ohio pledged ourselves one to the other, hand in hand, for life or death, when there was nobody in the wilderness but God and us. It was a, a curious kind of, of friendship that would endure despite their later finding themselves as tier one level operators on opposite sides of a very savage war. And there's an element of opposites attracting in this Gertie-Kenton relationship. Gertie was outgoing and gregarious, a talker. Kenton was quiet and very reserved to the point of, of shyness. Gertie was a drinker, and Kenton was abstemious, which was very unusual for that time and place. Gertie had an affinity for Indians, and Kenton was their inveterate enemy until quite late in life when uh, he did, like Daniel Boone, uh, eventually establish some bonds with old adversaries. In my estimation, um, what really brought them together was, was that sense of, of shared danger. Uh, nothing bonds men together like sharing dangers and relying on each other's skills and capabilities and knowing that the other has their back. The multiple courier missions were as dangerous as hell and very arduous and exhausting. And these two frontiersmen fulfilled their mission successfully. They missed the big battle of the war, though. Andrew Lewis's southern branch of the Virginian Army was camped at Point Pleasant, where the Kanaha River fed into the Ohio, when a big force of Shawnee Indians crossed the Ohio River and struck them on October 10th, 1774. There was a hellacious firefight in the forest. Lewis's force suffered 75 killed in the fighting, which is a lot of casualties in this kind of frontier partisan warfare. And to put it into appropriate perspective, 75 killed in a single day's combat would be considered a catastrophic loss in the 21st century in the War on Terror. The Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu, which happened in 1993, is still very vividly remembered today because of the book and the movie, that cost 19 American lives. The Korangal Valley campaign in the mountains of eastern Afghanistan took 54 American lives, and those are considered you know, major losses in the war on terror. So that gives some, some context and a point of reference for, for how big of a deal this fight was. It was a big, nasty fight. And while the Virginia militia took a mauling, a really severe mauling, they did hold the field, and the Shawnee had to retreat across the Ohio. And knowing that they hadn't destroyed Lewis's command and that a whole other column of militia was coming under Lord Dunmore and advancing onto their, their villages in the Ohio interior, 
the Shawnee were forced to, to sue for peace. And Dunmore was, was willing to accept that. He was not interested in a war of extermination, although some of, of the militia that he commanded did want to go on and destroy the Shawnee entirely. Dunmore halted his advance, and he called a conference at what he named Camp Charlotte, after his wife. And he wanted Logan to come into the peace talks. After all, Logan had... Uh, the, the murder of Logan's family had, had sparked off this war, and uh, Logan had done considerable damage to the settlements on the frontier. So it was important to Dunmore to have him participate in, in the peace negotiations. So Dunmore sent Gertie out to find him. And once again, Gertie selected Simon Kenton, Simon Butler, to accompany him, along with another frontiersman who also had some language skills. Logan had taken, at this point, at least 30 American scalps, but he had not fought at the Battle of Point Pleasant. He declined to come in to Camp Charlotte, but he sent a message to the Virginians, and it was Gertie who committed what would become known as Logan's Lament to memory and then relate it to the traitor John Gibson to be written down and recorded for posterity. And uh, curiously enough, even amongst the, the hardened frontier militia just come through this very harrowing fight, Logan's words stirred compassion and, and soreness in the heart. Logan said, I appeal to any white man to say if he ever entered Logan's cabin hungry, and he gave him no meat. If he ever came cold and naked, and he clothed him not. During the course of the last long and bloody war, Logan remained idle in his cabin, an advocate for peace. Such was my love for the whites that my countrymen pointed as I passed and said, Logan is a friend of the white man. I have even thought to live with you, but for the injuries of one man, Colonel Cressop, who last spring in cold blood and unprovoked, murdered the relatives of Logan, not even sparing his wife and children. There runs not a drop of my blood in the veins of any living creature. This has called on me for revenge. I have sought it. I have killed many. I have fully glutted my vengeance. For my country, I rejoice in the beams of peace. But do not harbor a thought that mine is the joy of fear. Logan never felt fear. He will never turn on his heel to save his life. Who is there to mourn for Logan? Not one. So the Shawnee and Mingo and Delaware, because of the results of the Battle of Point Pleasant, were forced to confirm the Treaty of Fort Stanwix concessions, giving up the lands east and south of the Ohio River, throwing it all open to colonial settlement. And that includes lands that are now West Virginia and Kentucky. As we'll soon see, though, the Ohio Indians never truly accepted the outcome of Lord Dunmore's war. And those lands in, in West Virginia and Kentucky would remain a contested dark and bloody ground for another generation. For his part, Simon Gertie had had a pretty good war. 
He came out of it with his reputation enhanced, and he'd come to the notice of the governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore. Uh, Unfortunately for Gertie, that would become more of a liability than an asset, though, because tensions between the colonies and the crown were drawing out to a breaking point. There were some other conflicts, too. Pennsylvania and Virginia were literally brawling over the right, who, who held the rights to the Forks of the Ohio. Fort Pitt was even renamed Fort Dunmore for a minute. Simon was affiliated with the Virginia faction, and he got arrested in one of the fusses that were constantly breaking out around the fort. But there were bigger problems along the way. When 1775 rolled around in April, the colonists fought the British Redcoats at Lexington and Concord. And after that action, Virginia rebels drove Lord Dunmore out of the governor's seat in Williamsburg and out onto a ship off the coast. Dunmore had compiled a list of men on the frontier that he considered loyal and capable, and Gertie's name was on it. And when that list came to light, the Patriot faction, or the Rebel faction, depending on how you looked at them, looked askance at at Simon Gurney. And the suspicion that he was a loyalist at heart never went away. Nevertheless, Simon would serve the American cause well from 1775 up to 1778, and, and at some risk to himself. Uh, there's no reason to think that that he was not sincerely committed to the American cause during those years. The Americans had hoped to keep the Indians neutral. And uh, in that effort, Simon would head north into New York to confer again with Gayasuta. But now he was acting on behalf of a new American Indian department rather than the British Indian Department and under the supervision of his old uh, old boss George Morgan, who had had uh, attempted the hunting enterprise back in the 1760s. But this time, the old Seneca was not very welcoming. If it came to choosing sides, he wasn't going to choose the Americans because he saw them as the ones who were most aggressively encroaching on Indian lands. So he and the Seneca considered Simon working with the Americans as a kind of treason. And it became clear to Gertie that he was at significant risk that the Seneca would turn him over to the British who would incarcerate him. So Gertie fled back to Fort Pitt. So he went back and and, um, as I mentioned, he was working for George Morgan, who he had had a good working relationship with in the past. But for some reason that relationship fell apart. Uh, It's speculative, but I suspect that Gertie may have butted heads with with Morgan over over policy. There was a good reason that the Indians didn't trust the Americans, and Gertie may have overzealously argued their case. In any case, Morgan sacked Gertie from the Indian Department for quote-unquote ill behavior, which may have had to do with Gertie's drinking. Um, Gertie did have a tendency to be combative and confrontational and, uh, and pretty unpleasant when he was in his cups. And I suspect that, that, uh, he and, and Morgan argued 
while Gertie was drinking, and, and that was the end of that. So things were starting to unravel for Gertie. He, he got a gig recruiting for the Virginia militia with the promise of a captaincy attached, but that captaincy never materialized. He was suspected of conspiring with loyalists against the American cause and was tossed in jail at Fort Pitt. He promptly broke out and then turned himself back in the next day. And uh, given his nature, he passed that off as a, as a pretty good prank. It's, it's doubtful that the American authorities saw it in, in quite so humorous a light. He was cleared at that time of conspiracy, but people remained suspicious of him. And he was living under this, this cloud of distrust and suspicion, and, and that's always very unpleasant. But the final nail in the coffin of Gertie's service to the American Patriot cause was the so-called Squaw Campaign in early 1778. By this time, the Shawnee and the Mingo and some of the Delaware were allied with the British, and they were raiding American settlements in western Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Kentucky, and war was underway again. General Edward Hand led an expedition out of Fort Pitt into the forests of eastern Ohio with the goal of overawing the, the Delaware. And it was a completely botched endeavor from the very beginning. For some reason, Hand chose as the pilot for the expedition a blacksmith named Brady. And why he did this when Gertie, who was a proven navigator, was available is unknown. We can speculate that perhaps it had something to do with that distrust of, of Gertie. But anyway, this blacksmith named Brady led the expedition on this kind of meandering route and into swampy ground in the in, in this was in in you know February and uh, it was chilly and icy and and uh, he led them into into wet swampy ground and they blundered around. And they fired on Delawares who were not hostile to the Americans and managed to kill a kid and a couple of women, which is what earned the campaign its ignominious title. It was one of those situations where, where the counterinsurgency just created more insurgents. Even the Delaware who were inclined to neutrality or even to friendship with the Americans did not take kindly to this, this American force blundering around and killing innocent people. So not unpredictably, Hand, General Hand, asked Gertie to get him out of this mess and guide him back to Fort Pitt, which he did. But by this point, Gertie was thoroughly disillusioned. Hoffman writes, Profoundly disturbed by what had happened, Gertie had a lot to mull over. General Hand made his decision to attack the Indians at the Kuskuski towns without making any effort to ascertain whether they were friends or foes. Was this just a lapse in Hand's judgment, or did it signify an ominous change to American policy? Gertie knew that the majority of the western and northern tribes were already allied to the king. Certainly, if there was no longer any real intention to conduct peaceful trade with the Indians of the Ohio Valley after the war, then there was no reason to maintain peaceful relations with any of them. When Simon was at Conewago, 
Gayasuta had told him that in their efforts to enlist the Indians, the British had claimed that if the rebels won their independence, they would come and take all of the hunting grounds and destroy the Indians completely. Simon could no longer regard such a statement as rhetoric. So what course was he to follow? His ties to George Morgan were cut and he could no longer trust General Hand. Too many promises had been made to him and broken. What was left for him to do at Pittsburgh? Prior to the Squaw Campaign, Simon's commitment to American independence had been steadfast. It was time to look hard at his decisions, and the one he was now pondering would be irrevocable. He made up his mind to talk things over with one of the few men he trusted completely. He went to see his old friend, Alexander McKee. Now, McKee was an old British Indian Department hand and half Shawnee to boot. He had been under suspicion of being a loyalist since 1775. And the only reason he hadn't fled the Fort Pitt area was that he had extensive properties and business interests there, and all of that would be forfeit if he fled. But by the spring of 1778, there wasn't much choice. When Gertie went to visit him, he was under surveillance and his arrest was imminent. So he had decided that he was going to defect to the British. Gertie, with his own options run out, decided to go with him. On March 28, 1778, McKee, Gertie, and several other men rode out on a moonless night, crossed the Ohio River, and headed toward the British bastion of Detroit. Simon Gertie was now a renegade. In our next episode, we'll explore how Simon Gertie became an agent of the British Indian Department fighting against the Americans in the Revolutionary War, which would make him the most notorious figure in American frontier history. I want to thank you for coming to the campfire and uh, thank our patrons for our support. The link to our Patreon page is in the show notes and we'll see you down the trail.